Well, our scripture reading this morning is going to be taken from the book of Colossians. Uh, we are in a series on sanctification, and we're going to spend about three weeks in this chapter of Colossians, Colossians 3. Uh, you probably haven't heard the name Gad El Malay. Uh, Gad El Malay is basically, he's the Jerry Seinfeld of France. Uh, he's, he's the most famous comedian in that country. When uh, if people can mention a line from one of his routines and start laughing because it's so familiar to everybody. Well, Gad decided that being the best comedian in France wasn't enough of a challenge to him. And so he has set out to become a great comedian in America. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld uh, told Gad Elmaleh, he said, man, if I had your success in France, I would have been happy with that and not tried to come over here and replicate that. But I admire what you're trying to do. You're like somebody who builds cars and wants to go and build the best car in Germany. Or wants to build, and then you go and you make the best pasta factory in Italy. And then you go and you write great plays in England. And now you want to come to America, the home of great stand-up comedy, and you want to tell great jokes. I, I get what you're trying to do. And so... Gad is trying to make it in America, the country that has the highest standards for stand-up comics. And it's a struggle for him. It's a a real struggle for him. He has to perform in bars before small crowds. Uh, He has to speak in a, a language that he knows, but that is not his native tongue. There are cultural barriers, things that people in France think are funny, people in America could care less about. Like, it just, it just flies right past us. Um, he has to learn to pace his delivery differently. He has to learn that sometimes you have to emphasize a different syllable in a word in order for people to get the joke that you're trying to make. But every night, he goes out on stage, and it's as as if he's taking on this new identity as an American stand-up comic. And it's a struggle because, in effect, he's trying to be somebody that that he's not really that person. Uh, Last week, if you were with us, we talked about the reality of the struggle in the Christian life. How it's hard for us as believers to follow God and to obey God and to trust God. And the reason for that has to do with the fact that there are still remnants of the flesh, still remnants of the sinful nature that we carry around with us even as believers in Jesus Christ. Um, We're no longer who we were after conversion. We're different people. We're indwelt by the Spirit. And so we don't have to live in the way we once did but we still are tempted to live in that way. And so we have to do battle with those remnants of the flesh. And one of the ways that we're going to kind of unpack today is, as we think about this, one of the ways we do battle is by remembering who we are and learning to live in accord with who we are. Uh, when Gad Elmaleh is in France, he speaks French. He tells jokes like a French comedian. When he tries to do stand-up in America, it's as if every night before he goes on stage, he kind of has to say to himself, I'm in America. I am functioning as an American. I have to tell jokes that Americans think are funny, that they understand. All right, when someone becomes a Christian, we're kind of like Gad in that we're, we're trying to learn to live as someone who we have never been 
before. Right? And, it's, and it's all new to us. But we have a big advantage over Gad because we're not trying to be somebody we're not. We're trying to learn to live as somebody we actually are now. Again, that's made difficult by the presence of indwelling sin. So we have to learn to say, kind of like Martin Luther would say, I am a baptized man. I I am not who I once was. I am a believer in Jesus Christ. And we we have to learn our new identity and learn to live in line with who we are now. So that's what we're going to think about today. How do we, as Christians, learn to live in line with who we are? How do we speak English, so to speak, when there's a part of us that would really rather keep speaking French and would, would find a lot of joy in continuing to speak French? All right, how do we do that? So Colossians 3, uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 17, but uh, this morning we're really going to focus on these first four verses, but I'm going to read all of this. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, two, in these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Would pray with me? Um, Father, this is word, your word that you have given us um, in English, and we are thankful for that. We take that for granted sometimes. We thank you for that. We thank you for revealing yourself to us. Uh, I pray now that, that as I seek to proclaim your word, that you would speak through me and, and over and above me and even against me if necessary, but that you would speak to your people this morning. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So how do we learn to live in line with who we actually are now as believers? Uh, it starts with, with knowing who we are in Christ. And seeing that in Christ we have a new identity and a new security and a new destination and a new king. All right, first of all, we have a new identity. Um, how do you decide what to wear every morning? 
When, when I was in college, I had a pair of black and white checkered shorts. Um, yes. And a black t-shirt that I, I would like to wear with those. Uh, and my wife is cringing now or giggling or both. Uh, but it was the late 80s and early 90s, and I did have a friend who referred to that as my cute outfit. I don't know exactly what that meant, but um, I did need help in deciding what to wear. How do we decide what to wear? How did you decide what you're going to wear this morning? Uh, it depends on who we are, uh, how hot-natured or how cold-natured we are, what time of year it is. Um, where we're going, who we're going to see, whether we're trying to, we're worried about impressing the people we're going to meet or we could care less about impressing the people we're about to meet. But it, it's all tied up with who we are. It's all tied up with our identity. Uh, throughout this passage, as you can see, Paul is saying that as a Christian, there are certain clothes, as it were, that you are now to put on. Uh, and that there are certain clothes now, as it were, as a Christian, that you are now to no longer wear those. But, but why should you? Why should you cease dressing in one way and begin to dress in another way as a believer in Jesus Christ? And his answer is, is because you're not the person that used to wear those clothes. That's not who you are anymore. They no longer fit who you are. Why should you wear these new clothes? Because they now fit who you are in Christ. Um, imagine that you had grown up as a South Carolina Gamecocks fan, and that some of you are. And, and, and all of your life, you had, you had pulled hard for USC, but you have a good friend who is a Clemson fan. And you used to go with him sometimes to football games at Clemson, and, and you would go with him to Death Valley, and you hated Death Valley. And you hated the noise, and you would laugh when people tripped when they were going down the hill. You thought it was the funniest thing in the world. You just couldn't stand anything about Clemson. Did I get an amen on that? <laughs> but, but, but then you start playing football, and, and you're an all-state quarterback, and you're being recruited by Carolina and Clemson, but then at the end of the day, Carolina doesn't offer you anything, and Clemson offers you a scholarship. And so you go to Clemson and you become the star quarterback and you win great games and you begin to love Death Valley and running down the hill and the atmosphere. And it's like you've been completely transformed. It's become not a place you hate, but it's like the greatest place on earth to you now. Your identity has been altered, right? And so you wear a different set of clothes. You don't wear the red and black. You wear the orange and purple now because it fits with who you are. The key to, to, to wearing the new clothes that Paul talks about in this passage, things like kindness and humility and patience and meekness, and the key to, to getting rid of the old clothes he talks about of anger and slander and sexual immorality is embracing your new identity in Christ. Uh, chapter 2 of Colossians Paul says that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that means that you were buried with Christ and you were also raised with Him. That you were once dead in your sins, but that's not who you are anymore. You are now alive in Christ. That you have died with Christ to the basic principles of this world. Now in chapter 3, he repeats that if you're a believer, you've been raised with Christ. And in fact, when you died, your life was hidden with Christ in God. Uh, we mentioned a few weeks ago that Paul's preferred way of talking about Christians is not 
using the word Christians. Like he never, he never, he never says that. He never calls Christians Christians. He refers to us instead as those who are in Christ. Over eighty times in his writings, he refers to believers as those who are in Christ. And if you are someone who is in Christ, that means that you are so completely connected to Jesus that when He died, you die. And when He rose again, you rose again. And that you are seated with Him even now in some sense in the heavenly places, with Christ, in Christ. You're not the same person you were because you died with Christ. Sin isn't the dominating force in your life any longer. It's still there, but because you've died with Christ and risen with Christ, the the new dominating influence in your life is now the Holy Spirit that indwells you. You're not a slave any longer. You've been freed. You have a new identity because you're connected to Jesus. And, you know, if... If we would think about that, think how that would change us and change the way we think about ourselves. How do we tend to? What are some of the labels we use to uh, when we think about ourselves? Right? I'm a I'm a father, or I'm a I'm a mother, I'm a son, I'm a daughter. Uh, I'm I'm such a lousy parent. I'm such a great businessman. I'm too fat. I'm too loud. I'm too quiet. I'm great at my job. I'm I'm not so good at my job. I'm pretty good looking. I wish I was much better looking. I can't stand what I see when I look in the mirror. I'm a consumer. I'm defined by what the people around me think of me. I'm a failure. We have we have all these voices, all these identities that are that are constantly speaking into our lives and trying to define who we are and how we think about ourselves. And Paul is telling us like stop listening to all those voices and hear this voice. I'm connected to Jesus. I'm in Christ. He's the king who rules over the universe and who loves me and I am his and he is mine. He loves me and he gave himself for me and my sins have been forgiven. I'm a, I'm a forgiven sinner loved by the king of the universe. The king who rules it all loves me and has forgiven me. That's who I am. All right? Even if you think my black and white checkered shorts are stupid. I, I wish I could find them and have worn them this morning. That would be great. I don't care. Or at least I shouldn't care. If I'm in Christ. If I'm in Christ. Uh, what would what would happen if you and I like stopped to think about that and stopped to listen to listen to that voice and to define ourselves in that way? That 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 I'm so loved by Jesus that He willingly died for me. What if I stopped when I'm beating myself up about how, how much of a failure I am? If I stopped to realize who I am. In Christ, and I'm loved by Jesus. On the other hand, when I'm tempted to think too much of myself, what would it be like if I stopped to think, like, ah, yeah, I, I might, people might think I'm great, but I'm really so bad that Jesus had to die for me. But he did. He did because he loves me. What if I stopped and realized that when I was faced with the moral and ethical choices I'm faced with every day? I could say, I don't have to do that any longer. That's not who I am. I'm in Christ. I have a new identity. Uh, Secondly, we have a new security. 
Paul tells us here in verse 3 that your life is hidden with Christ in God. In Harry Potter, uh, Voldemort takes part of his soul, part of his life, and kind of puts it in this object for safekeeping in order to gain immortality, and they're called horcruxes, and, and all you Harry Potter people know about that. It was a way of kind of keeping him alive. It was a place where he stored his life. His life was hidden there. In, in our real non-Harry Potter world, there are actually uh, cultures where the people feel that their life is tied up with an object, like a rock or like a bowl. It's a life token. And sometimes they even refer to this rock or bowl as their life. And they take their life, that this rock or this bowl that represents their life, and they hide it someplace to keep it safe, believing that as long as their life token is kept safe, as long as this rock is kept safe, then I will be kept safe as well. Paul's saying something like that here. He's saying your life is hidden somewhere where it will be kept safe, but it's, it's not in a horcrux, it's, it's not in like a rock or a token somewhere. It's hidden with Christ in God. What, is, what does my well-being depend on? It depends on Christ. It depends on Christ. He's, he's got me. If, if I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, He's got my life hidden in His hand. Now, it doesn't mean that nothing bad is ever going to happen in my life. Um, but it does mean that nothing will come into my life that He has not allowed for His purposes. Uh, it means that my soul will never be destroyed, that my life will never be forfeit, that the eternal life that He promised for me he will keep and he will keep me for it. And then in the end, everything bad in my life somehow comes undone because my life is hidden with Christ in God. You know, we think about things we, we find our security in. What are, what are the things that make you feel like oh, it's, it's rocky right now, but everything's going to be okay? What are those things in our life? There, there are dozens of things we could start listing, right? Places we, we try to find security. Our retirement plan, our ability to accumulate wealth, uh, our job or the job that we think we're going to have one day. Uh, we find great security in the U.S. Department of Defense, the United States Treasury. At, at times, we, we have security from them. Uh, whether people affirm us and say nice things about us as a source of security, our appearance, um, whether we live in a safe place or not, how cool we are, our ability to, to, to achieve, to make good grades, to be successful, um, all kind of things that we try to find our security in. And where I find my security affects how I live my life. Um, what happens when money is my ultimate security? Right? What happens when money is my ultimate security? I become greedy. I become driven to always make more because that's what's going to keep me safe. That's what's going to make everything okay. And so I'm never able to give it away because that defines my security. What happens when what people think about us and their opinion of us is our security? 
we'll never be able to, to take a stand for the things we believe in. We'll never be able to, to say no to things we know we shouldn't go along with because their opinion is our security. When our appearance is our security, we're anxious and we're worried about life. We have to get our look just right. We have to get our Instagram posts just like because everybody is evaluating that. And, and my security is tied up in everybody else's evaluation. But if, if you are in Christ, if your life is hidden with Christ in God, there is no more secure place that you can be. You know, imagine trying to cross the Atlantic in a rowboat. And now imagine in a hurricane. And now imagine trying to cross the Atlantic in a rowboat with Jesus driving the boat. Do you see how if if I really believed that, that my life was hidden with Christ in God, if we really believe that, we'd take more risk for the kingdom of God. Uh, We'd concentrate on ourselves a whole lot less, and we'd worry a lot less if we believe that our security lies in the fact that our life is hidden with Christ in God. I've got a new identity, a new security. Uh, thirdly, I've got a new destination. Uh, imagine you and your family have been planning a trip to Canada for a long time, and then uh, plans changed, and instead you're going to the Caribbean for your vacation. You'd have to repack, right? You'd have to change your travel plans, right? You'd be looking to take a different route because... I'm going to a different place. And so I've got to prepare accordingly. Um, there's a line in a Jack Nicholson movie where Jack Nicholson asks someone, how's, how's your mother doing? And they say, not too good. I'm afraid she's on her way out. And Jack Nicholson says, we all are. Act accordingly. I just had to do that once. My wife hates me for that. But, but he's like, and if you see that movie, it's The Departed. He lived like that. Like he had this... Uh, hellious lifestyle because he thought at the end of the day I'm just going to die and so I'm going to get all the fun of it while I can so I'm going to live like that I'm going to act accordingly Paul says here in verse 4 that if you're in Christ you've got a new destination you've got a a destination that's actually beyond the grave that you're, and that your new destination is to appear with Christ in glory. That's where you're headed. That's the trip you're taking. And, and that ought to change everything. I mean, I mean, think about this for a minute. Tomorrow, tomorrow, what have you got on your schedule? You've got you to get up. You've got to get ready for work. You've got to make an appearance at the breakfast table. You've got to make an appearance at work. You know, there's places you have to show up. And then one day, if not Monday, your, your destination is to appear with Christ in glory. If Again, if, if I think that at the end of my days I'm just going to curl up and die and rot and that's it, then I am, I am very likely either to, to live in despair or to try to get as much goody out of life as I can in the meantime and get as much glory as I can. My, my grades are going to consume me. My class ranking is going to consume me. What you think about me is going to consume me. My standard of living is going to consume me. My job is going to consume me. Because this is it. This is my shot at life. 
this is my shot at glory. And if I, you only go around once, right? And if I don't get it now, then I'm never going to get it. Paul says, don't, don't set your mind on that. Set your mind on things above. You're going to appear with Jesus in glory. And so if you are in Christ, you don't have to get all the glory now because real glory is coming. You've got a new identity, a new security, a new destination. And then finally, he tells us we have a new king. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father. He's your king. The the person seated at the right hand of God the Father is your king who willingly gave himself for you. It's cool. Um, He willingly gave himself for you. You've got a connection with Jesus, with someone who has position and authority. Several years ago, my family, we got to tour, I'll just say, a place in Washington, D.C., that, that you don't usually get to go in because we had a connection there. And we thought we were hot stuff because we got to go in there. But we got in there because we knew somebody, because we had an inside connection. Paul's saying, you, you have an inside connection with God. With the, with, with the person who's the ultimate authority in the universe. And that means your Savior is in charge of the universe. That ought to be a source of comfort to you and I. That your Savior is in charge of the universe. But it also means that your Savior who loves you is not just offering suggestions for how you might want to think about living. But He's actually giving us commands that we are called to follow. Our Savior is the King. And so He expects our obedience. So we've got a new identity, a new security, a new destination, and a new king. And that, that changes two things I want to talk about briefly. That ought to give you, a, give you and I a new confidence about life and a new set of priorities. Um, April 18, 1775, Paul Revere began his ride on horseback to warn everybody that the British were coming so that the local militias would get up and be ready and, and ready to fight the British. He covered 13 miles in two hours. Uh, every town he passed through, he knocked on doors and got people up to begin to spread the word. They, they beat on drums. They rang church bells. They did everything they could to get the word out. Uh, the message that Paul Revere brought spread like a virus. It covered 40 miles by 5 a.m., Uh, When the British showed up, they were met with organized resistance. In Concord, they were so badly, they were were badly beaten, and the American Revolution was now underway. And you all kind of know something about that story, right? Everybody knows about Paul Revere. Nobody knows about William Davies, right? You've probably never heard the name William Davies. Davies and Paul Revere actually met up together at 10 a.m. to go and spread the message that the British were coming. And they started out in different directions, working different routes to tell everybody what was about to happen. Well, why hasn't anybody heard about William Davies? Why are we all discriminating against William Davies? He had the same message 
He had the same number of towns to stop in. He had the same number of miles to cover. But the message he brought didn't stir anybody up. Uh, The militia leaders in the towns that he went to were never alerted. Uh, In one town that he had a responsibility of going to, so few men got up the fight that historians for a long time actually thought it was a pro-British town. Uh, In his book, The Tipping Point, Malcolm Gladwell argues that Paul Revere was a connector. He is one of those people that knows everybody. He was social to the, you know, 500th degree. Everybody liked him. Everybody liked talking to him. He told great stories. Everybody came to Paul Revere's funeral. He, he knew people in every town. He knew people in different strata of society. He knew the most important people in town. So when he went to town and he gave a message... That message spread like wildfire. William Davies was not a connector. He was just a dude. Like you or I. Like it'd be like one of us met Paul Revere and we went one way and he went the other way and we just kind of did our thing and Paul Revere was the one that was famous. Now why am I telling you a story? One of the battles that you and I face in life is, is, is this trying to answer the question of who am I? Who am I? And I think we feel extraordinary pressure in our society um, to be Paul Revere. We all want to be Paul Revere. We all feel like we're being groomed to be Paul Revere. We've got to be special. We've got to be extraordinary. We've got to do great things. There's nothing wrong with doing great things. But the reality is, is that most of us are not Paul Revere. Most of us, 90, 95% of us, are William Davies. We're ordinary people with ordinary gifts, and nobody's ever going to make a movie about anybody in this room, I'm fairly certain. And that can be depressing to us in our go to college, go to a great college, get a great job, live a great life, be a great person culture that we live in that can be depressing unless you realize who you are in Christ and you don't define yourself by whether I'm Paul Revere or William Davies or or whoever I am but I define myself that I'm by the fact that I'm in Christ and I have a new identity and a new security and a new destination and a new king. And if you believe that about yourself, that will give you the ability to move out into the world, whatever God has called you to do, whether it's something small or something great, what, that will give you the ability to move out into this world with confidence that, that I have the smile of the king and that he will use me for his glory, whether I turn out to be Paul Revere or whether I turn out to be William Davies. It gives us a new confidence. And then finally, it gives us a new set of priorities. If I've got a new identity, I don't have to spend so much mental and emotional energy trying to impress everybody around me. If I have a new sense of security, I don't have to spend so much time worrying about what will I eat, what will I drink, what will I wear, because my life is hidden with Christ in God. If I've got a new destination, I don't have to be as consumed with what I can get out of this life. If I've got a new king, I don't have to worry about what's going to happen next. But I do have to think about ordering my life in a way that's pleasing 
to Him. And all that together means that I really can set my mind on things above. It doesn't mean I don't give any attention to the things of this world, but it does mean that as I live out my daily life in this world, I think about who I am and whose I am and where I'm heading and who my king is and how he would have me to live. And so as I know that, I can move out into life with a newfound confidence and a new set of priorities about how I'm going to live life and even begin to dress in a new set of clothes, as Paul talks about here in chapter 3. Let me, let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would help us to begin to understand who we are in Christ uh, and not to define ourselves by the labels we have placed on ourselves or the labels others have placed on us, uh, that we would not try to gain our security from what the world says about us, but that we would know who we are in Christ. Uh, that we would indeed know our identity and find our security in you and believe that we are headed to glory, uh, to be with our King. Impress this upon us, Father, so that we indeed might live confident lives um, and live them obediently before you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.